You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. If you would stand for the reading of God's Word, uh, there are Bibles uh, under the seats in front of you if you want to follow along. It will also be up on the screen. Uh, we'll be in Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. And we'll read the whole chapter. And give your attention to these words because they are God's words. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Joksha fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Letushim, and Lumimim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Efer, Hanak, Abida, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There, Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beher Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, bore to him, to Ab that is Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth, Nabaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abram's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus... Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, and all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, 
Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to listen to what you have to say. And I do pray that now you would open your word to us. That each person here, you know their needs. That you would, by your Holy Spirit, teach and instruct each person here as they have need. For those who need to be humbled, we pray, O Lord, your word would humble them and call them to Christ and repentance. To those who are in need of comfort and strength, we pray that you would comfort and strengthen them. And only you, O Lord, can do this. So we ask that you would meet us now and you meet us in our needs, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I can remember the year that I was transitioning from not going to school into kindergarten. And it was a terrible year, um, not because I had particularly bad teachers or anything like that, but it was because I had a very good friend and we used to play together during the summers and before we went off to school, but we only got to hang out two days a week because he'd come spend time with his grandmother while his parents worked. But when kindergarten came, we lost two whole mornings a week that we couldn't hang out and play together anymore. And most of us, uh, transition is and change is not easy. In fact, most of us really, really hate it. Um, we hate things as small as losing our favorite character on TV when they move off the show. We hate, uh, though maybe a few of us like the adventures of change, most of us don't like all the tasks of moving, for example, or changing jobs or moving to a different place, switching cities. We, we just don't like change. And this passage actually has lots of change and transition, and it sits more or less right in the middle of the book of Genesis. And the big changes that we are seeing is one of the worst, and that is death. There's no change bigger than dying, partially because you never get to practice, really. You might move multiple times in a lifetime, but you only die once. And no one has really come back to tell you what it's like and how you can do it better. So there's a lot happening in this passage, so we're going to have to kind of move quick and hit the highlights. The structure of the passage looks something like this. You have two deaths... You have two prayers, there's two brothers, and it sort of culminates on a focus on one birthright. So the outline this morning will follow roughly the structure of the passage, where we will look at the two deaths, we'll look at the two prayers and the two brothers and the one birthright, but then one of the things we find that this passage is picked up in rather key places in the New Testament, so we'll give a little bit of time to look at the significance of this passage for the larger uh, scriptures. And one of the things as we go through, we're watching lots of human people come and go and a little bit about really the sum of their lives, but what's always there is God. There's always something that God is doing, despite the fact that he's not obviously immediately present in every point. So let us look first at the two deaths. So Abraham, much of Genesis follows Abraham. He's one of the big characters in the whole book, and he's phasing out. 
and we're shifting from him to his son and grandson, Isaac and Jacob. And it's sort of like tying up the loose ends of Abraham's life. In verses 1 through 18, we get Abraham and Ishmael's life summarized, but one of the things that you see all throughout as their lives are summarized is that there are echoes that God has been faithful and God has kept his word. For example, we're told that Abraham dies at a good old age, right, in verses 7 and 8. Well, back in Genesis 15, verse 15, God actually told Abraham, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. God was faithful to that word. Abraham dies at a good old age. In verse 12, we're told about Ishmael, Abram's son. And one of the things that we find out, if you've read as we've been tracking with Abraham's story, is that God promised Abraham that he would bless Ishmael in chapter 17, verse 12. He told Abraham that he was going to make Ishmael into a great nation. And here in verses 13 and 14, we get the names of all of his sons. And in fact, they're summarized in verse 15 as 12 princes according to their tribes, right? They actually look like Abraham is going to have some grandsons coming in a bit. That's going to be 12 of them. And so, in fact, God is faithful to bless Ishmael with sons and to make him into nations. There's another promise that has happened earlier as well. Twice, Hagar, Ishmael's mother, has run away or been sent away due to the conflicts in the family. And twice, God has met with Hagar and made promises to her. In verse 18, we see uh, that Ishmael, is he settles from the land of Havilah and he settled over against all of his kinsmen. Well, God, in fact, promised Hagar in Genesis 16 and in 21 that Ishmael would survive. He was going to be a survivor. But he was also not going to be the most peaceful person. He was always going to be in conflict with his uh, relatives. And in fact, that is true. God's word predicted comes true. And in fact, one thing that's just really an interesting detail in our passage is that we're told in verse 11 that Isaac settles in Beer Lahai Roy, which means nothing to us because we don't read Hebrew. Um, but that is actually the, it's the well of seeing, which is actually where God met with Hagar and where he promised her that he, well, he told her that he sees her in her need and meets her in her need. And so it brings back that echo that God meets people in their need and he is faithful to his word. But in all of this, God has blessed Abraham. He's fulfilled his word to Abraham and to Ishmael. But in particularly, it's highlighted that God is blessing Isaac, we're told, in verse 11. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. Because in Genesis 17, when Abraham asks God, would you bless Ishmael, my son? God says, yes, I will. And we see that he does that here. But in particular, God says to Abraham in that moment in verse 19 of chapter 17, he says, Sarah, your wife will bear a son and you shall call his name Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So every time Ishmael gets blessed, God emphasizes, Abram, I am going to bless Isaac in a special way. And we see that happening as God, with Abraham passing, God transitions his blessing from Abraham to Isaac and is faithful to Abraham's son. Now, there's one quick other note in all of these names and name dropping that's going on. And that is in all of God's faithfulness, there is a, an element of foreboding because some of this has to do with human failures. Abraham, we're told, has taken another wife. And you read that and it seems like, well, after Sarah dies, uh, Abraham, you know, 
remarries. Well, it seems actually more likely that Abraham marries her before Sarah dies. So Abraham is probably practicing some form of polygamy. And one of his sons is named Midian. And that, the, the nation that will come from that descendant actually will prove to be both a political and a spiritual danger to Israel. So one of the things that if you read the Bible closely is that all human actions have ripple effects. And it might take a long time. But Abraham's failure to honor marriage the way God would have marriage honored as we saw in Genesis 1 and 2 will have implications for his children later on. Uh, so amidst God's faithfulness, we see this human faltering. But one thing, there is a question that comes up. God has promised to uh, Abraham that he is going to be a blessing to the nations. And we wonder, where is that happening? Because we see some foreshadowing of danger and hostility but where's the blessing? God has kept his word so far. Where's the blessing to the nations? And this brings us to the two prayers. The question becomes actually quite pressing because you realize at verse 21 that Rebecca is barren. Is the blessing come to a dead end? And actually, it's at this point that we now get a glimpse of Isaac's faith. Isaac is actually, for as important as he is, he tends to be a character we don't see doing a whole lot in the book of Genesis. Things happen to him, and the focus tends to be on Abraham and Jacob. But here we get a glimpse of Isaac's faith, as well as Rebekah's, which we saw last week when she gets up and leaves her family and in faith comes to marry this guy she's never met. In verse 21, we're told that Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. He shows his faith, his faith in God, by praying. It's striking because Isaac here takes the initiative. If you look at much of Abraham's life, God is the one who shows up and does stuff. He's the one who comes and says, hey, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do this. Here, Isaac calls out to God. He takes the initiative. And one of the things that he must have done this because he's watched his parents walk by faith. Sometimes really well and sometimes not so well. But he saw how the Lord, in fact, gave him to his parents against, really, all odds. And that God fulfilled his promises. So we see Isaac responding to the fact that God does keep his promises. And so he prays. He sees and he believes. And he saw also how God provided when he was being offered up to God. That God provided a way out. And it wasn't just like Isaac was like, you know what, I'm going to do a one-week fast and pray thing so that I, for my wife. Notice that Isaac is 40, we're told in verse 20, when he marries, and that he's 60 when the twins are born. That is 20 years of waiting. 20 years. Meanwhile, if you look in the passage, right, everybody else seems to be just having kids galore. His old dad is having kids still. His brother is having, his half-brother is having lots of kids. So he's waiting 20 years. And he prays for his wife. And it's at this moment we can pause and ask, what is your prayer life like? Are you on like a prayer life plan that could sustain you 20 years? Because how long you pray actually reflects your faith. Some of us are not very patient. If you've ever been on a road trip of any length, you know, parents, and you hear, are we there yet? And you're like, it's going to be another 10 hours and you think that should give him a sense for you. Like, that's a long time, okay? And then like 30 minutes later, are we there yet? Like, 
what kind of concept of time do you have, kid? I said 10 hours, right? We got a long time. Okay. 10 minutes later. Are we there yet? Abraham and Isaac have learned that God is in the long wait game and they pray. Isaac prays. And guess what? The Lord listens. We're told in verse 21, the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah conceived. God listens and this same God who created all things and created all life here in a particular moment gives life to this couple. And there's a second prayer. Rebecca's pregnant and I'm not exactly sure what this felt like, but they're jostling inside and she actually has a moment being like, what on earth is going on? And it seems that she's actually troubled that maybe has the Lord actually not been favorable. And so she, we're told, goes to inquire of the Lord. She also goes in prayer. And God responds. And this is, brings us to our third point of two brothers and one birthright. God responds, we're told, that two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So we have these two boys and God predicts two things. That there's going to be tension. That in some ways they are not going to be the most compatible. You know, often twins are like inseparable. They love each other, hang out together, do everything together. These two twins are not going to be quite like that. And the second thing is that we're told, God says in advance before they're born, that the older will serve the younger. God inverts the normal privileges. Usually the oldest was the one that was privileged. But here God actually says, in some way, the second is going to be the privileged of the two. So we've got these two nations, these two peoples that are coming from Isaac, but one is going to be privileged. And then we get them characterized. We get their names in verses 25 and 26. Esau is named because when he's born, he's a hairy kid. And Esau roughly sounds like hairy, right? So just a kind of basic descriptor kind of name. Jacob comes out holding on to his brother's heel, and his name means something like, may he be at the heels, which has two possible meanings. It has a positive meaning, which could be a prayer, actually. May God be your rear guard. Essentially, may God be at your heels, behind you, protecting you. But it also has a hostile sense to it. The idea of dogging someone's steps, like that you're always right there, kind of at their heels. And Jacob's actions, as we watch him, seem to actually lean in that direction. Like if you watch what he does, he tends to be the kind of guy that is always going after, particularly his brother's heels. There's some sort of treachery involved. And you can watch, keep an eye out as these two brothers, you'll see this play out not only in our passage, but later. And then their characteristics are described in verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter and a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. And you might think, and it's, it's kind of the case, that Esau is a bit of a man's man, right? He's a hunter. He's a tough guy. He could probably go out, you know, and survive. He could do one of those TV shows like Survive in the Wilderness for however long, you know, and he, he's kind of like going to go into the outback and he can show you all the stuff that you can eat and survive roughly. Although he also cooks. Though Jacob also, he kind of comes off described as a bit of a mama's boy, right? He just likes to be inside. And we're told that he's quiet, and that word quiet could mean that he's just quiet, simple. It could also mean he's sort of a solid, solid guy, level-headed. 
But the level-headedness also could mean that he's kind of cool and calculating, which is, in fact, what he does. Then we see that there's some favoritism in the family. Keep that in your mind for later in the story. And one of the things that's at play in this passage is that God has told us what these kids are going to be like before they're born. And he's already told us that the older will serve the younger. And as we'll see, that God has a plan and the blessing that has passed from Abraham to Isaac is going to pass to one of these two guys. But when you look at them and you watch them interact it's not super clear which guy should get the blessing. Because in both of their own ways, they're not the best, they're not the best kids. In our passage, Esau comes out, he's been out maybe hunting, maybe he's done his 40 days, you know, surviving on the land, hunting, and he ran out of, what he needed, so he comes home and he's famished, we're told. And for a bowl of soup, he essentially sells his birthright. Now, the birthright is essentially the privilege that in uh, this culture, the oldest would inherit twice what everyone else got. So essentially, the bulk of the family wealth passes through the firstborn. And Esau, it's honestly kind of hard to imagine, is like, you know what, I just need this bowl of soup more than I need that birthright. And it does seem that maybe, yeah, he's kind of famished, but actually after he eats, he gets up and walks away. He's maybe not as close to death's door as he thinks or suggests. And we're told in verse 34 that he despised his birthright. He lived for the moment, and that was it. He, could, he didn't even have the foresight to think about, well, maybe, you know, if you survive this incident, you might want to have a large sum of the inheritance. But Jacob himself, so Esau, on the other hand, is kind of like, I just need food. He thinks about the immediate needs and moves on. Jacob is not particularly all that upstanding either, right? Here's his brother, maybe in need, and he takes advantage of the opportunity And this whole thing of may he be at his heels, it's intriguing that if you jump all the way back to Genesis 3, that there's this tension, we're told, between the descendant of the woman and the serpent, and one of them is going to strike at the other's heel. And the serpent has caused humanity to fall over food. So, do we have something here of Jacob actually looking a little serpent-like? Maybe. Who, who is Jacob? Is he really all that great? And so, at this moment, you get to the end of the story and you're like, which person would you pick for getting the blessing? We already know that dad favors the hunter and mom favors the tent guy, right? So, that's a question that is going to sit here with us for the next few chapters of Genesis. So let's now look at how does this passage get picked up in the New Testament? What, are the, what is the significance of what's going on here? And if you want to turn in your Bibles to Romans 9, we'll look at Romans 9 and Hebrews 12 very briefly. In Romans 9, Paul is asking a question. Paul is a Jew who has believed in Jesus, and he's been given a mission by Jesus to share the good news with all the world. But if you know anything of Paul's life stories, his own people have often gotten in the way of him sharing the good news with other people, uh, often uh, beating him up. And so he has this question, why have my own people, the people of Israel, the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, rejected Jesus, who 
Paul is preaching is the promised kid that we have been waiting for. What is going on? And here is how Paul answers in chapter 9, verses 4 through 12. They are Israelites, that is my fellow countrymen, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God failed, which is, in fact, a theme of Genesis 25. God's word has not failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, or who are naturally born, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And now coming to our passage, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Now this might be one of the most difficult portions of Bible, the Bible and its teaching and we are only going to be able to tackle it briefly, but what are the things that Paul states very clearly in this passage based on what we have seen in Genesis so far is that regardless of actions, either good or evil, God, as we will see, chose Jacob. The lesser, will, the older will serve the younger. And the choice is based purely on the mercy of God. It doesn't make our actions worthless, but our actions are not the ground on which God shows mercy. Because Isaac, or sorry, Esau and Jacob are both not so great guys. Neither of them earns bonus points with God because of their actions. God chooses based on his mercy. Which then raises the question which Paul asks in verses 14 and 6 through 16, what shall we then say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And there's any number of questions that probably come to your mind at this moment, but let's just focus on the fact that it's God's mercy. If it is God's mercy, this means that we should have humility if God has chosen us. Often, religious people look down on irreligious people. If you look kind of across different religions, right? The people that really practice, really devoted, really committed to whatever their religion demands, often look down on those people who are negligent of it. But it's not the case with Christianity, or it shouldn't be the case with Christians. Because if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, it is because God has been merciful to you in Christ that you are his. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. It is because God is merciful to you and you can delight in God's mercy. In fact, God's mercy frees you up to delight more in God and less on yourself. 
Now, we don't have time to dig into this, but let's just say that one other major feature of this is not just God's mercy, but that it is a mystery. A mystery as to how God decides. And Paul, in fact, acknowledges this mystery. He says at the very, very end of this whole discussion he has in Romans, he says in Romans chapter 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And one of the things that's striking oftentimes is that there are plenty of us in here who barely make it through high school science. You hear of things like theoretical physics and quantum mechanics, and maybe there's even people in this room that have the slightest idea of what on earth those phrases mean. And yet, if you think about the fact that God has created those things, yet so often with certain mysteries, we are unwilling to acknowledge them or we are troubled by them. And it's not that we shouldn't wrestle with the tough questions. But in the end, there is a certain degree to which God is way, way above us, and that is the answer. And the question is whether we trust God or not. But that is for another time. But Genesis has clearly shown that God has chosen Abraham out of all the peoples of the earth, not because Abraham's super awesome. God chose Isaac, and now God, we will see, chooses Jacob. That is the motion of the book of Genesis. And we can talk more about that if you would like. Now there's one other passage, Hebrews 12, that picks up here on our passage. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. And the author of Hebrews, one of the things that the people are facing in the book of Hebrews is that they are suffering for following Jesus and they're thinking about maybe giving up on following Jesus because it's just getting hard. And so here's what he says. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, he sold his birthright for a single meal, we're told. And as you follow the rest of Esau's story, we'll see that, that this passage, these two sentences, have summarized much of what we see of Esau in Genesis. And the warning here is to not be like Esau and reject the birthright, to not despise the promises that are coming to the church through Jesus here in Hebrews. And it is tempting, right, for these Christians because it's difficult to follow Jesus sometimes. Some of them, we're told, have lost possessions. Some of them have been ostracized from families. Some of them maybe have even been thrown into jail. So this is not like easy stuff. It's not like the author of Hebrews is telling them, okay, you had a bad day, just brush it off. They're facing serious hardship. And this is something that actually is very pertinent to us. In this city, there's a certain degree to which there is a, an element of cultural Christianity. There's a certain cultural heritage of some degree where Christianity is maybe assumed by lots of people. There's a lot of people that go to church around here, which has some positives and some negatives. But here's the danger. It can seem that you're just born into Christianity, right? 
just like anybody, if they're born in some other part of the world, they'd be born into a Buddhist family or they'd be born into a Hindu family. You know, it just, it's a luck of the draw, so to speak, right? And Esau is born into a family uh, and a culture where the birthright was a thing. Yet that birthright was tied to a divine promise, a divine blessing. And he gives up on it. Okay. And in fact, his name, he gets a second name in this passage, right? He's, he's named Esau, which means Harry. And he's also named Edom, which is red. But it's not red because his hair was red. It's red based on the soup. His name, if you read the passage, is, his nickname is red based on the soup, which actually indicates something of his spirituality. His spirituality was totally tied up in the here and the now. The birthright meant nothing to him. What's also interesting is Jacob himself is going to get a second name, which will also be a spiritual name. So I feel like I'm saying, like, keep watching a lot of times. But yes, keep watching uh, to see what happens with Jacob when he gets his spiritual name. But here's the thing about Esau, right? He had... He seems to be absolutely oblivious to the blessing that could have been his as the firstborn. That a blessing from God was passing through his family. And I think that this could be very similar to those of us who have experienced some form of cultural Christianity. Where you grow up going to church and doing churchy things and maybe even listening to Christian music or that sort of thing. And one of the things that after a while you realize is, you know what, a lot of this is just doing stuff. It doesn't seem real, and you know what? I'm surrounded by hypocrites. And so you're just like, whatever, I'm done with that. You see people not living according to the gospel, sometimes doing terrible things, mistreating others in the name of Christ, physical, sexual, spiritual abuse in churches. So anywhere from low-level to very high-level hypocrisy is not hard to find in cultural forms of Christianity. And so it's easy to throw Christ, the baby, out with the bathwater. And that is actually currently a trend. There are lots of younger folks in particular who are not sticking around in churches, if you look at the demographics. So here's the warning. We want to cling to Christ and we want to be a church that represents Christ well so that people aren't throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And if you're in that place where you're tempted to throw the baby out with the bathwater, you have to remember this, that any number of Christians might fail you, any number of churches might fail you, but Christ will not fail you, and you do not want to lose Christ. You don't want to be like Esau and chuck something because it seems to not matter to you. We want to be the kind of community, and we want to be the kind of people that cling to Christ no matter what. And some of you are in that kind of danger where you're kind of like, hmm, do I want this or not? And on the one hand, you might be thinking, you know what, I don't want spiritual hypocrisy. I don't want you know, this stuff that I've been told, but it seems like no one actually lives. And you are kind of distracted to the fact that, okay, this might be terrible. What, who is Jesus? That's the important question. And sometimes it is kind of hard to find a good church where you can find people really chasing after Christ. Now, on the other hand, this passage is super freaky. How do you know you're not an Esau? Because... Maybe you've done some bad things. Maybe as a Christian, you have done things that you think, that's it. You know, I've spurned God. I've spurned the promises. Now, if you read this verse about Esau, it is a little bit frightening. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing... He was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And you read that passage, it sounds like, 
Yikes. Esau wanted to be sorry, but he was told by God, sorry, buddy, you're going to have to stay outside. He can't come in. It all hinges on what does the it that we're told, though he sought it with tears. In English, it would look like he sought repent. He sought repentance with tears, but he didn't get it. He was denied repentance. But actually, it seems, if you read the verse in context, there's one other word that he actually sought, and that is the blessing. Esau was not sorry that he had spurned God or his birthright and the spiritual things tied to it. He only wanted what was earthly, and that is consistent with who Esau is throughout Genesis. He wanted soup in this moment, so he didn't get the birthright. Later, when he wouldn't have stomach, you know, hunger pains, he was like, man, I want that birthright. Lost it. Esau is marked by regret and not repentance. He's not ready and willing to turn from his sin and sorry about his sin. He's not seeking spiritual blessings. He just wants earthly blessings. And one of the other things to note in this passage in Hebrews is that the passage is not saying blanketly, watch out because God will not forgive those who are repentant, but rather take heed. Watch somebody who did something that they regretted. In the Bible, there's a distinction between what is called worldly sorrow and godly grief. Worldly sorrow is merely regrets over what you have done and the consequences that you will face, right? It's like the child that realizes they stole the cookie, which tasted amazing, but now they have to sit in time out or get spanked or whatever it is, right? Bummer. And so they weep. They weep over the punishment. They don't weep over the fact that they took the last cookie from their sibling or that they violated some you know, rules of the universe, right? That's not what's on their mind. And given the chance to do it again and not get caught, they would do it again. But godly sorrow, which we're told by Paul in 2 Corinthians 7.10, leads to repentance, hating the sin and turning from it. And so if you have turned from your sin because you've been sorry about the actual evil that it is, and you've begun to walk in a different direction, you're not Esau. Okay? Today, if you are unsure, if you have any hunger pangs for Christ, then the call is always to listen and come to Christ. So if you long for Christ and want to be free of the sin that clings to you, then come to him because he is gracious and merciful and he does welcome sinners. And this brings us now back to our passage. To conclude, because the passage looks like there's this emphasis on spiritual, this physical barrenness of Rebecca, but it's actually, you get to the end of the passage and you're like, actually, this is a spiritually barren passage. We have two brothers through whom one of these guys gets a godly blessing that's supposed to somehow bless the nations and both of them seem like absolute spiritual wrecks. The one is guided by his stomach. The other can see a little bit further, but he's a conniving, manipulative guy. And as we continue through Genesis, one of the things is, how is God going to bring spiritual life into this situation so that he can actually then bless the nations? So as we go through Genesis, prayerfully, think about how can the Lord be at work in us as individuals, as families, as a church? Where are the places that we are spiritually barren? We are dead or dried up empty, and pray like Isaac that God would bring new life. Because 
This is the same God of Genesis 1 who brought all things into existence, physical and spiritual. And our physical and spiritual lives also come from him. As Paul says, who has ever given him a gift? This God, that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, each of us here knows that there is some way that we are lacking. That in ourselves, we do not have the power, the strength, the energy, maybe even at times the desire to seek after you, to seek after the things that matter to you and that you want to matter to us. So often we chase things that are brief and fleeting, just like Esau. We, we want a quick fix. We want just a little bit of soup. And we miss out on the blessings that pass before us, greater blessings than we could ever imagine. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would stir in each person in this room a deeper hunger for something more, a hunger for the Lord Jesus, a hunger for his mercy and his grace, a hunger for his ways. And I do pray, O oh Lord, that you would hear these prayers, our prayers to be alive. I pray that this week you would give all of us greater glimpses of life that comes from Christ, that we would depend on Christ for life more and more each day. And help us, O oh Lord, because apart from you we are lost, we are barren, and only all things, good things, come from you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.